Today is uh, December 17th, 2023, and we're going to start Lesson 6, uh, the second part of the dangers of discontentment. So last week, the dangers focused uh, primarily on murmuring. We'll just touch a little bit on murmuring at the end of a section I didn't get to last week, if we get to all of that. There's... The material today is not in any particular order. It's not in order of importance, and it's not in order of, um, of uh, it's not in a sequence that helps us build. It's more or less random, so don't, don't take the start as being more or less important than the end. Just It's, a, it's an assortment of material today. Part of the dangers of discontentment is what it does to our mind. And that's how we're going to think about it today. How does, how does discontentment affect the mind? So the first lesson is that discontentment is a foolish endeavor. The scriptures paint foolishness uh, in a very negative light. And it's never given as a virtue. And it's difficult to enjoy the things you have in life if you're always casting your eye on the things you do not have or that you cannot obtain. So Jeremiah Burroughs writes, What a foolish thing is this, that because I have not got what I want, I will not enjoy the comfort of what I have. Do you not account this folly in your own children? You give them some food and they're not contented. Perhaps they say it is not enough. They cry for more. And if you do not immediately give them more, they will throw away what they have. He describes this as just a foolishness. That if you can't have something that you want, or something's been even taken away from you, then you refuse to enjoy what you have. Now, as a side note, it would appear that children in the 1600s and children today act very similarly. If they can't have what they want, then they're not going to be happy about anything. And so discontent creeps in and creates foolishness. Why would anyone consider that a good idea to take away the enjoyment of what you have to gain the discomfort of what you don't have? That's... It's just, it's a folly, and Burroughs presents it that way. The second idea is, uh, that we're going to look at is the futility of discontentment. Discontentment is completely futile. So what we're going to look at here, and we're, we're not going to spend much time on this passage in Matthew I've got up here, but I, I want to emphasize something about it that I think may not be obvious. Um, When we become discontented in mind, there's a tendency to believe that there's a power in our mind to affect change through through the exercise of discontentment. So what power is there in a discontented mind to alleviate the condition causing the discontentment? In other words, how can discontentment rid itself of discontentment? What can the mind do to alleviate the condition? And you think about it like that, you think, well, obviously nothing. I mean, it's not going to cure itself, right? Discontentment is not the cure for discontentment. 
But yet this is, this is how we think of the practice of discontentment. We, we harbor it and we nurse it because we want things to be different. And the point that these, uh, I'm going to read a quote here by Burroughs and maybe one other one, is that discontentment is powerless to alleviate the condition of discontentment. It's futile. It's an exercise in futility. You are wasting your time by practicing discontentment. So Burroughs writes, by all your discontent, you cannot help yourself. You cannot get anything by it. Who by taking care can add one cubit to his stature or make one hair that is white to be black? You may vex and trouble yourselves, but you can get nothing by it. Do you think that the Lord will come in mercy a whit the sooner because of the murmuring of your spirits? Is that where you think the power lies? Is that somehow I'll lay a hook on heaven and they'll be here just a tad bit sooner through this discontentment? But Burroughs uses two illustrations uh, in this quote, which I thought was really helpful. Uh, he says, do you think you can add a cubit to your stature? Can you change one of your hairs from white to black? That's a curious illustration. I mean, why mention that? Why, why describe it in those terms? What's the value in thinking about the discontented mind with cubits and hair color? And I was struck in thinking about Matthew 5. We have this passage here in 33 through 37. Again, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform your oaths to the Lord. But I say to you, do not swear at all, neither by heaven, for it is God's throne, nor by earth, for it is his footstool, nor by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. Nor shall you swear by your head, because you cannot make one hair white or black. But let your yes be yes, and your no, no. For whatever is more than these is from the evil one. Now, there's a lot in this passage about keeping your promises and being true to your word, which are all important topics. And there's perhaps in our minds somewhat oddly a tendency in the, in the, uh, the mind of individuals to establish a hierarchy of things to swear by. You don't swear by Jerusalem, you swear by yourself, your head, your temple. I mean, you, you have this hierarchy. And all those things are, are important things to understand, but not for today. I think more subtly is there's something uh, direct to say about our ability to order the course of providence through the state of our mind. I think that's what one of the things Jesus is illustrating here is that your, your state of mind does not alter the course of providence. We're going back to why is it futile? So if we say in verse 36, nor shall you swear by your head because you cannot make one hair white or black, maybe we could paraphrase it by saying, don't swear by your head. That's dumb. Because when it comes to the simple act of changing the color of your hair through the power of your mind, you are powerless. That's in God's hands. That's what Jesus is trying to communicate. You're powerless to alter providence through the power of your own mind. And if that state of mind is one of discontent, it's equally as powerless. And so Burroughs is using this illustration to show us your discontented mind, you can't, you can't even change 
the color of your hair. You have no power to alter God's providence. So quit relying on a discontented mind in the mistaken belief that somehow you can. But there's a similar statement over in Matthew 6, the next chapter over in verse 27, as Jesus is describing the sinful conditions of worry and anxiety and the importance of seeking the kingdom. And he says, which of you by worrying can add one cubit to his stature? And again, he's, he's going back to this idea. Can your state of mind alter God's providence? Some of you have more cubits than other people do, right? People of different heights. And Jesus is saying, if the power of your mind combined can't alter your cubits, why are you practicing that power of mind? Why are you engaging that framework? Now, he's saying it in regards to worry and anxiety, but the same thing is true of discontent. It's Burroughs' illustration is accurate, that a discontented mind is a futile endeavor to alter God's providence, as we might see it explained in the color of our hair or by our own natural height. Both illustrations help us see the futility of the power of a discontented mind. And that's the point. Now, I do want to make one caveat to this. Uh, means matter. The means by which we do things matter, and they matter a great deal. The means by which we accomplish things in our life matters tremendously. You have the ability to alter outcomes as it appears in your life. That's critically important. The outcomes are not altering providence, but from our perspective, we are changing what happens. God has established means for us to change things. If you work, you get paid, you have money to buy food. That's the means by which God's providence is being exercised. So we're not saying that means are unimportant. We're not saying that. Means are important. The confession uses that phrase of second causes to refer to these means that God has put into practice. And we looked at that for a bit in our class on providence. The exercise of diligence and the exercise, the due use of means is important. But the discontented mind is not the due use of those means. The discontented mind is futile. It's powerless. But we believe in the ability to alter the outcome of our life through the due use of appropriate means. You work, you get to eat. If you don't eat your meat, you can't have your pudding. (laughs) I wondered how many people might get that reference, but that's true. That's right. Don't eat your meat, you can't have your pudding. That's a timeless piece of wisdom given to us. All right. Let's look at the next one. That discontentment torments the mind. Discontentment torments the mind. So one of the themes that we're looking at in this class is, well, before, before we get to the tormenting the mind, does this distinction about the futility of discontent to alter outcomes and the use of means. Is that distinction clear for everyone? Is there any confusion on that or comments you want to make on that? Well, it's clear and 
think you're say, saying differently, but you really can't alter the outcomes either. It's good to work, and then you eat. I mean, the Bible's clear about that, but you can work and not eat either. Like, it's oh, sure. still, you know, like we know sure. that the uh, even those outcomes are the blessing of God to bring in a harvest to work. That's right. <clears throat> yeah, we are yeah. ultimately dependent on any everything. That's but right. it's good to, you know, it's, you must work. God has appointed means, and they have to be exercised, or you have no right to expect anything. Yeah, absolutely. Well, we can't change what we're discontent with. Like, we look to Jesus to change the discontentment ourselves. That's Not right. The situation, but the discontent. That's right. We need that alleviated. Yeah. Any other thoughts about that? Okay. So, the, the next item is how discontentment torments the mind. Now, I, I hope that one of the things you've picked up in the class on meditation and on this class is the importance of our state of mind. What state of mind are we to be in? And having a peaceful and settled mind is a gift. A peaceful and settled mind is a gift. So I want to look at a few passages that come from us by way of the Puritans, but I don't want them to think of, think of them as just the Puritans. I want you to have the framework that they were pastors who had flocks, who had people that they visited with, and here are their observations of what the discontented mind looked like from their perspective. I don't think things have changed. I think we can relate to these things, but let's look at a few quotes. First is from Joseph Hall, and he writes, discontentment is a mixture of anger and of grief, both of which are wont to raise up fearful tempest in the soul. Now, how, many can, how many can relate to the idea of a fearful tempest in the soul? Boy, our minds go wild sometimes. That's that sounds, that sounds like a real punishment, right? So here's Hall again. As for that other passion of grief, what woeful work does it make in an ungoverned mind? How many have we known that out of thought for unrecoverable losses have lost themselves? How many have run from their wits? There's a lot in that. He says this work what does it make in ungoverned minds? What do you think he means by that phrase of an ungoverned mind? I think that's key to understanding this quote. What do you think he means? Being disconnected from the Holy Spirit? Well, there is a disconnectedness to it, yeah. Uh, but I don't think that's quite what he's getting at. Vicki? Lack of discipline in your thinking, yeah. Thinking along the right lines, thinking the way you're supposed to be thinking and look at what it produces that he says you've, you experience unrecoverable losses of whatever kind. He doesn't describe what they are, but they're unrecoverable. They're, it's not coming back. And for this ungoverned mind and the experience of this unrecoverable loss You've lost yourself. You've run from your wits. You've run from your wits. You're, you're just lost in mind. It's a torment to have that taken from you. 
the picture of if you had horses, I'm not a horseman, cowboy, but they're very powerful. If you had them under reins and under control, lots of good things could happen. But if you just let them go, uh, bad things. And so in a bout of, could be anxiety or some other condition, if you just let the mind just go, just let it, it's ungoverned and, it, and you're just like letting it do whatever it wants to do, it, it will just go crazy all over the place. That's the sense I have with that ungoverned mind. It's just the reins, are, you've dropped the reins and now you're at the mercy of wherever this horse is going. That's right. And it damage. Yeah, that, that ungoverned mind also has, I think, in part of the metaphor, uh, that they use is the ship. You, you'll hear the word tempest and ungoverned. I, I think they may have even had mind the rudder. And you're, you're, you're just tossed and was, you can't steer. I was thinking about like in the New Testament when Paul, when they were, they finally, they jettisoned everything on the ship and then they just let it go and they had to, they were driven before the storm. They couldn't do anything else and they just had to let the ship just, shipwreck was of course the ultimate right. end. That's right. <clears throat> Who wants to have an ungoverned mind and be lost in their wits? I don't. What? How, how do you? How do you come back from that ledge? I mean, what do you have left if you, you're? It's torment. You you are tormenting yourself. Here's another quote: What can be more foolish than for a man because he thinks God has made him miserable by crosses to make himself miserable by his own distempers? God's brought some cross, something adverse into your life. The unrecoverable losses, there are other things. And now you're, you could be made even more miserable. You're stacking misery. It starts with these unrecoverable losses, which are God's will being worked out through the acts of providence. Now you have an unrecoverable loss. And what do you add to that? A distempered mind. You're going from bad to worse. Discontentment is a torment. Uh, I didn't finish that quote. How witless a thing it is for a man to torment himself with the thoughts of those evils that are all that are past all remedy. This goes back to the unrecoverable loss. It's past remedy. You're not you're not going to get it back. Whatever is gone is gone. So why make yourself miserable with discontentment? <laughs> You know, it's kind of, I, I was thinking about the parts I no longer have in my body, but I'm more concerned about the parts I still have. Right. And so, yeah, I can't do anything about those other parts. Yeah. I can see how that applies to a lot of areas in life. Sure it does. Yeah. Let's get a few more quotes. Discontent, this is from Thomas Watson, is nothing else but the echo of unbelief. And remember that distrust is worse than distress. Discontent is unbelief. It's unbe- what, would, what would it be unbelief in? When he says it's unbelief, what is it unbelieving? The goodness of God. That's one thing. That's right. God's sovereignty. Yeah. God's providence. Yeah. His promises. His promises. That's right. 
Watson is always good for a pithy phrase. Distrust is worse than distress. That's a helpful way of remembering it. So here's Burroughs. The discontented, how do they help themselves? By abuse, by bad language. Someone crosses them, and they have no way to help themselves but by abuse and by bitter words. And so they relieve themselves in a way, in that way, when they are angry. Somebody does something to you that brings some loss to your life. And how do you respond? With abusive thoughts in your own mind. Coarse language, vileness. You're thinking ill of others. Now, you may not, maybe it's, there's a sense in which it's justified. Maybe what they're doing is wrong, but there's no escaping the fact that in God's providence, they brought this condition about, right? You, that was part of the wisdom of understanding providence is to be able to see through the events that are happening and to recognize that God is the one who is orchestrating and revealing his perfect will. And there's something that we have to learn about that. But finding solace by cursing, by bad words, by wicked thoughts about others, about God, because of this discontent, is never going to bring you help. It's a torment. It's a self-imposed torment. And Watson, again, has this idea for care, that is, worry, anxiety, the state of discontent is to the mind as a burden to the back. It loads the spirits and with overloading sinks them. A despondent spirit is a discontented spirit. Being overwhelmed, completely overwhelmed with care, with dissatisfaction, just weighs you down. It weighs you down. It's a burden you will not be able to carry profitably. It's a terrible thing to be tormented with a discontented mind. Yeah. It's, it's, a, it's a punishment. Yeah. Yeah. That's right. What do you guys think about this idea of discontent as torment? Any comments? That's true. It is. It is. Unfortunately, it gets worse. So we have, um, we have a word I think we should spend more time thinking about, and that is discontentment makes you censorious. Censorious. Yeah. What does censorious mean? It's a good word. Yeah, severely critical of others, uncharitable in your criticism, that sort of thing, yeah. So let's stop for just a second and think about the opening chapters of Genesis and how there's a refrain that runs through the uh, opening that God has made all things, and what did he declare all things to be? Good. Good. It's a, it's a terrific place. God makes them, and it's good. And then he, he's got this home, and he makes man and puts it in there. And he says, I want to give companionship, and there was fellowship. And what would be some of the ways that we would describe, what, what, what are some words that help us understand that life in the garden? 
the people, the fellowship, the surroundings, what words come to mind? Complete. Complete? Okay. What else? Contentment. Well, contentment, sure. Yeah. Peace. Peace. Satisfaction. Trust. Trust. Sure. Orderly. Orderly. Beautiful. Beautiful. Happy. Yeah. I think I think you can't read the opening chapters of Genesis without that idea in your mind. I think that's self-attesting. So the question then is, has any of that original design been abrogated? Has any of that design that God wants for his people changed course? Does God want his people to think about beautiful things? How about happy things, contented things, satisfying things, peaceful things, joyful things? Is, that, is the original design intent still evident in our lives today? I think it is. I think it is. Unfortunately, discontentment makes you censorious towards God. So Thomas um, Boston has uh, three different illustrations of what discontentment does and he describes it as accusations toward God. Now, these accusations don't have to be made directly. You don't have to say, God, I'm going to say this about you. But it's something that's implied, whether you want to admit it or not. So, the first thing it does is discontentment accuses God of folly. It accuses him of folly as if he were not wise enough to govern the world. The peevish, discontented person in his false light sees many flaws in the conduct of providence and pretends to tell God how he may correct his work and how it may be better. Isn't that what we're saying through our expression of discontentment? It's, an, it's, it's a summary, it's a characterization, it's a judgment we put upon God. If only you could govern the world in a wiser fashion. Now, I do hope all of you have the good sense not to actually say that out loud, right? I mean, I, I think we're safe there. But unfortunately, discontent says that. Discontentment accuses God of folly. It also accuses him of injustice, as if he did us wrong. The judge of all the earth cannot but do what is right. He cannot be bribed or biased, yet the discontented heart rises against him and blasphemes him as a respecter of persons. You did wrong to me, is what the discontented heart says. Does God do anything wrong to, especially his people? He doesn't do anything wrong to you. The judge of all the earth shall do what is right. And that was the explanation given for the destruction of Sodom. And Gomorrah and the salvation of Lot. And yet the discontented mind says, what you're doing right now as revealed through your providential care of me is wrong. And it's not wrong. 
Discontentment accuses God of cruelty. Thus, goodness itself is blasphemed by the discontented who behave as if they were under the hands of a merciless tyrant who would sport himself with one's misery. Discontent fills the heart with black and hard thoughts and represents God as a rigid master and a cruel Lord. This goes back to the comment Vicky made about God's goodness. Discontentment makes God out to be a merciless tyrant who's sporting with us in cruelty. Is God cruel to you, really? I mean, you're never going to say that out loud. But isn't that what discontentment is saying? When it expresses its heart, it's making a private judgment against God. Boston also says that discontentment rises from a blinded judgment that puts darkness for light and light for darkness. It cannot see the wisdom and the conduct of providence, which does all things well. God will be glorified by his management of the world and everything that's in it. And yet discontentment goes back to this idea of folly and it says, you know, I don't think you handled that situation right. It could have been done better. Really. That's what we want to say. That's our testimony. So this censoriousness, this inclination to severely judge and criticize without charity, it comes from a darkened heart and perhaps, just as importantly, a turbulent mind, a tormented, turbulent mind. And because of this unsettled mind, the person experiencing this meditation or observing it, or a providence, cannot meditate and seek to understand the wisdom of what God is accomplishing in his active upholding, directing, disposing, and governing of all things. If the mind is given to these accusations, then there is no capacity for you to meditate on the wisdom of what God's doing. You can't seek it out. You can't search for it. You can't find it. You won't even be looking for it. So when you're engaged in the act of discontentment, you are also actively putting out of your mind the ability to meditate, to seek the wisdom and the goodness and the beauty of what God might be doing. There's two ditches to fall into. You can't fall into just one, unfortunately. There are two. It's a censoriousness. What thoughts do you have on that? I think our flesh, and one of the way I've heard the word in the past is like our fleshly desires, like it's two circumstances in our lives. <clears throat> we go to our brain to tell us if I could just be the director and direct the show, everything would be perfect. You know what I mean? And I can't, I can't direct. Nobody's doing what I want to do, so that's where the discontent comes in. But it's trying to, it's trying to direct it instead of let God direct it. You know? All we need is one ring to rule them all. Yeah. If only I had it. <laughs> if only I had it, right? The yeah. show would be perfect. <laughs> the show would be perfect, Bruce. Two responses. One is, ouch. <laughs> um, especially the comment about discontent is an active suppressing of the uh, belief in God and, and 
well aware that when I'm discontent with God and I'm censorious towards him, that I'm also taking it out on the others around me. That's right. Collateral damage all around. <clears throat> Nothing good comes from it. Nothing good. Any other comments on the censorious nature of discontentment? It's extremely difficult when you are, you know that God is doing these things, everything you said, but if you are, in fact, suffering at the, from the acts of other people, Joseph is in prison because his brothers sold him into slavery and then Potiphar's wife lied about a sexual sin. That is, in fact, the case. He is in prison. And those things aren't good. Like, they're not, they're, they're sinful acts. But you, God is the one, ultimately, right? And you could, Book of Job as well, is a pretty classic way to unpack this. And so you have the, what you see in the actions of others, which may be sinful, and your censorious nature of railing against those disconnected from, I don't it's just, it's really difficult to, sometimes to consider or to let your mind be balanced in sinful acts of other people and dealing with those but recognizing they come in the context of God who cares for you and is allowing those things to happen for your good. It's a lot to... It's a lot to take in. And if you can't see the different planes between the acts of these individuals, which all fall under this idea of the second causes, and the acts of God, if you can't see the concurrence between what God is doing and what men are doing, and that God doesn't think these men are forces that he has trouble with. He's, he's guiding these things. It's always a slander against God, no matter what anybody's doing against you. If you cannot see what's going to happen that could be good that can come from that, or if you're tempted to believe he's not being kind or wise or whatever the case may be, there's always a quiet slander in your heart. Always. And there's one other, that's, those are maybe acts of commission. People are doing something to you. There's also acts of omission. People are not doing what I think I need them to be doing for me. This group is not meeting my needs. Yep. I, all I can focus on is how this, this group or this person or whatever thing is not meeting my needs. They're omitting what I want them to be doing. Same thing. All right, well, let's go on to the next one. Uh, we've got quite a bit to discuss about this, and I have an idea. Uh, it's a, just an idea. Um, I don't know how true it is, but it, I've been pondering this for a while, and so I'm going to test it out on you guys to see what you think about it. So discon the relationship between discontentment and covetousness. So I, I wonder if how many people would see a direct line between the state of discontentment and covetousness as intuitively as the writer of Hebrews does. We see in, we looked at this passage, Hebrews 13, 5, in an earlier lesson, and it says, let your conduct be without covetousness. Be content with such things as you have, for he himself has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we see this spectrum. You've got covetousness over here, and you can have contentment over here. And that they're, they're on opposing ends. And so the, the question is, why do these two ideas sit on opposite ends of the spectrum? 
How is it that covetousness is at the other end of contentment? Is that what you would have thought would have been the sin that sits in opposition to contentment? Now, my guess is probably not. My guess is most people don't think of, well, I'm discontented. That obviously means I'm inclined to covetousness. I don't think most people would say that. But that's what Hebrews 13.5 is telling us. There's a clear contrast right there. So let's investigate covetousness for just a bit and see if we can't trace how the writer of Hebrews joins these ideas together. So that's, that's what we're doing here is to see if we can understand what was clear in his mind. Does that make sense? Okay. So John Owen defines covetousness this way. He, he writes, it is an inordinate desire with a suitable endeavor after the enjoyment of more riches than we have or than God is pleased to give unto us proceeding from an undue valuation of them or love unto them. I'm going to read that again. And, and it's not just riches, but it could also be a condition, right? So don't get too hung up on the riches part of it. He says, covetousness is an inordinate desire with a suitable endeavor, meaning there's action. There's a desire and there's action. After the enjoyment of more riches, or we could say in parentheses, a better condition than we have or that then God is pleased to give us, which proceeds from an undue valuation or love of them. It's a lot in that. Owen can pack a lot of things into a simple sentence. So there's an inordinate desire requiring a suitable endeavor of riches or a condition. Now we may hope to find shelter from this idea of covetousness by focusing on the word riches and say, well, uh, I'm not after riches. I'm after a little more, but I'm not after riches after all. Uh, I, just, I just want my fair share. I want, I want a little more. I'd be happier if I just had enough. I'm not interested in riches. Well, what are riches? How do we think about them? So Paul directs our attention to 1 Timothy 6, starting in verses, verse 6 going to 10. Godliness with contentment is great gain, for we brought nothing into this world, and it's certain we can carry nothing out. And having food and clothing, with these we shall be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation and a snare, and to many foolish and harmful lusts which drown men in destruction and perdition. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil, for which some have strayed from the faith in their greediness and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. Sure seems to me when you read this passage, you're immediately struck with a contrast between food and clothing and riches. Right? That's what it seems like to me, that that's the idea Paul is presenting. He's got two ideas held in tension here, food, uh, food and clothing and riches. So um, if we were to reread um, this passage uh, 
without that verse. Godliness with contentment is great gain, for we brought nothing into the world, and we certainly can carry nothing out. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation and a snare. You see, that you can, you can read that, and if you read it that way, if you just omit that section, then what he's, the strength of what he's getting at doesn't really strike us. There's no, there's no punch in the gut. But inserting verse 8 as a contrast to the definition, what, what is riches? It's anything that rises above food and clothing. Basic needs, yeah, anything more than you need. Well, anything more than food and clothing. Yeah. <laughs> we, need food, need. we need food and clothing. That's what you need. But this is the point of what he's saying. And, and, he's, and notice how he focuses on the, just the desire to be rich. But those who desire to be rich fall into this temptation. They desire riches. And you go back over here. Let your conduct be without covetousness, without these desires for riches. Be content with such things as you have. That's what the writer of Hebrews is saying. So there's a, there's a tension there that begins with the contrast between food and clothing, having that, you can be content, and riches. So if you were to stack all the goods, you'd have food and clothing right here. That's your bar. Everything else is in the category of riches. So... In that light, how many people would admit that they're rich? Riches galore. More wealth than you can possibly imagine for everyone that you know around us. That's the, that's the, that's the tension between here, is where are you going to put the bar for riches and your desires? That's the point I think Paul is making in this passage in Timothy. So uh, we're not here to disparage wealth and riches. That's not the point. Uh, the point is not riches are bad. And this condition of food and clothing alone is, is idyllic. That, that's, not, that's not what he's saying. He's saying the desire for these riches drives you into temptations. Well, what are those temptations? It's covetousness. Yeah. So Owen writes, For when men are spoiled of some of their goods and in danger of losing all, it is apt to stir up in them earnest and inordinate desires after somewhat more than they have and not to be contented with what is present, which the apostle here declares to be covetousness. So the apostles, the writer of the Hebrews, is defining our words for us. Covetousness is that desire for more than what God has apportioned to us. And Paul says, food and clothing, you can be content with just that. And this contentment, continues Owen, is with respect as such things as you have. Be content with such things as you have or such things as that are present in your life. That's, there's a lot of weight behind that. There's a lot of weight. Covetousness is not, I think, apparent at face value as the ditch you're going to fall into when you leave the state of contentment. But I think it's there. And 
this is the novelty, that section I mentioned that I want to introduce today. And if you want to push back, that's fine. But Paul writes in Colossians, uh, therefore put to death your members which are on the earth, fornication, uncleanness, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. So he's got this string of sins, right? He's got this string of sins. And Ephesians 5, 3, which has similar material to Colossians, but fornication and all uncleanness or covetousness, let it not be named among you as is fitting for saints. And then last week we looked at 1 Corinthians 10, 1 through 12, where Paul reminds these Gentiles of the re- one of the reasons why we have these histories written for us in Exodus and Numbers is so that we can learn. We can learn what? We can learn how what kind of sinful condition arises out of complaining, out of murmuring, out of a state of discontent. So here's my theory, that there is a clustering motion of sin. Sins are like sorrows. They come not as individual spies. They come at you in clusters. So how, how do we think about this? Why does Paul assemble this list in Colossians 3? I mean, fornication, uncleanness, passion, evil desires, covetousness, and then he says parenthetically, covetousness is idolatry, right? He's got, he's got a list. Why? But fornication, uncleanness, covetousness, get these things away from you. Why, why cluster these sins together? What is it about these things I mean, why didn't he say robbery? He could have listed anything. But in 1 Corinthians 10, it's the same list. It's the same idea in all three of these passages that we have warnings against the murmuring, the complaining, the discontentment. In 1 Corinthians 10, in those first 12 verses, we see that these people were given over to sexual immorality. They were given over to idolatry. They were given over to complaining. The same three ideas in all three passages coming at us. Covetousness. Sexual uh, immorality and idolatry. They come together. Now, I don't know why. I don't know how strong the clustering is. It's strong enough in Paul's mind that he mentions it on three different occasions. As somehow... There's a relationship between all these things. I don't know how discontent causes sexual immorality. I don't see the direct line, but I think Paul did. I think it's there. Uh, there's a new book out by Rosario Barcelo called Five Lies of Our Anti-Christian Age, tracing out a bunch of the spirit of the age. The central theme of her book is that this is focused on gender dysphoria and homosexuality and all the things that Rosaria tends to speak. Central theme of that book is that it's all driven by covetousness. And she, she calls it envy. Right. She draws this out at length. It's the exact same thing that you're talking about. It's, and it, I had not, these are dots that very well connect that I don't think I had connected quite so well until this and that. So the danger we're describing here is that the dangers of discontentment is that it not only opens you to the sins of covetousness, which are inherent in the state of discontent, but it also opens you to the 
additional sins of sexual immorality and idolatry. And that may not be visible at first glance, but I think, I think it's there. You know, if you want to push back on that, I'm open to discussing that, but it, it seems clear to me that there's a relationship. So. I think absolutely. You think absolutely? Yeah, I think you're right. Well, let's take a straw poll. How many people think this case says, suggests at least that there's a, a clustering of these sins? Okay. Okay, good. How many people want to argue about it privately with me later? I'm open for that idea, too, <laughs> if you want. <laughs> All right. Uh, I have more material, but I want to close with just two other thoughts. Uh, so we're not going to get to everything today. And that discontentment, and discontentment conflicts your prayers. I'm not going to spend much time on this. I hope it's just patently clear. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be... Your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. What in the world are you asking for? What are you, what are you saying when you say, let your will be done on heaven and on earth? You're saying providentially execute your plan. You're asking God to do that. And in the state of discontent, you're turning around and saying, well, that's not the plan I wanted. That's cognitive dissonance. If, if you think you can pray the Lord's Prayer and be discontent, then you have some real dissonance in your mind. Something is not aligned. You need to fix those things. And uh, I'm going to... I don't think I put a slide together for this. I did not. But I want to make one other point and then we'll open it up for comments. And that is, at the end of the day, I think discontentment reveals a certain darkness about you. And here's what I mean by it. The state of discontent is so significant that what is being said by the individual, whether they will say it out loud or not, is that neither God nor myself, can make me happy. You're saying, God cannot make you happy. You're saying, I can't even make myself happy. Nobody can make me happy. Now, what does that say about you and the totality of the scriptures and the testimony of God? What does it say? It's a pretty dark idea to imagine at the end of the day, you'd lie in bed and say, well, I guess that's clear. Nobody, including God himself, can make me happy. That is a sorry state to be in. But that's what discontentment says. All right. We're going to skip over some other things due to time, but... We're open for your comments. You can have the closing word. How do you distinguish between discontentment? And I know I've mentioned this before, and like a, like a good sense of strife, because clearly you were discontented about something. So you want to improve things. I mean, a lot of the simple discontentment is about stuff. We all agree that in first world America, we don't need more stuff. Right? 
something enough to take risks and change it. I mean, we're in America, history of America. We're freedom, we law. How do you like, distinguish between those That's an excellent question, and that's what's coming up in the next lessons. <laughs> the next lessons. That's what's coming up. I was waiting for it, and I was like, I really haven't Yeah. Did you, did you no, I did not. I, I, I did not plan for it. You said, okay. Great segue. It's not the same as settling for mediocre, is it? Given the history of all the people that we look up to. I don't know that that's completely accurate, but I think I understand your sentiment, and I hope that we'll have a thorough discussion on that. When we... I, I was going to divide the class, the remainder of the class, into obtaining contentment. What do you do to be content? And then a class on objections and hindrances to contentment. But I've decided to combine those. And we'll just weave the objections and hindrances and difficulties in with the idea of actively pursuing contentment. So that's the plan over the next, say, two weeks or three, whatever it takes us to finish that up. Yep. Yep. I promise. Yeah, it's on the all, list. Like, I really struggle with the fact that I really believe my life isn't really about your happiness. You know, you may not find contentment, but there's a greater purpose. It's not about your you know, in life. And sometimes, like, it's, is it not more consistent with the gospel to strive for certain things? Because God does expect perfection, although that does not save us. It doesn't, like, like acquit us from certain and it also depends on how we want to frame what's involved in happiness. Uh, I, I think God does want us to be happy, but what I'm describing as happiness may not be the same thing as other people might throw into the bucket. And so uh, there are many ways to think about happiness, uh, but trivial ones, for instance, trinkets and toys, and such would not be in the list. So, uh, so, but these are the sorts of things we have to discuss. What do we mean by that? What do we mean by happiness and discontent and mediocrity and striving? And I mean, they're all good thoughts. They need to be. They need to be fleshed out. So, yep. Any other thoughts? There's probably a distinction between discontent and dissatisfied. We're going to get to that. Yeah. <laughs> Any other thoughts on this class? <laughs> um, I wanted to comment on the prayer. Um, I agree oh, yeah. that you can't pray that your kingdom come and be discontent. But I also think that David gives us five examples of praying where we do embrace 
not necessarily saying I'm not willing to be in your providence. I think it's just, you know, sometimes living through God's providence is gut-wrenching. And you have to be honest about what you're experiencing, what you're feeling. That's the relationship that we have with our Heavenly Father. But I also love the help in Psalms quite often. David starts out that way of just utter despair and then he'll end up reminding himself or stating how God is good and how this is really good. Um, but I don't think prayer should be calling in and, you know, whatever, bring it on, God. <laughs> I'm willing to do your, your will, but just <coughs> you should be free to, to pray what's gut-wrenching all that's true and more will be revealed in the weeks to come <laughs> stay tuned just for the record, I don't get any spoiler alerts <laughs> <laughs> any other thoughts alright let's pray